Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center, Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. I want to speak quickly to the Democrats in the Senate and others who are considering supporting this proposal. If you do so, you will be surrendering to right-wing racism, and more than that, you will be enabling it. Senate Democrats and the White House must not agree to these extreme demands. So that's some of the pushback against uh, any attempt to secure the border down there. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later as that whole deal might come together this week as part of a package that will include funding for Ukraine and Israel. Again, maybe we'll talk about that more later. Welcome to the Armstrong and Getty Show. One Tim Sandifer fan favorite. How are you this morning, Tim? I'm just great. Thanks for having me on. So um, you started calling us as Tim the Lawyer many, many, many years ago when we were on one radio station, KSTE in Sacramento, California. We are now on about 60 radio stations. And if you were listening last week, we have been named the 11th most powerful or influential or handsomest or loudest or something. We The 11th most something radio show in all of America. So there was a top 10 list. There was a top 10 list and you came in 11th. <laughs> That's, that's one way to look at it. It was actually like a top 60 list, and we were 11th, but oh, okay. it right. would be nice to be in the top 10, and that damned Megan Kelly with blood coming out of her whatever is number 10, so that's what's keeping us <laughs> out of the top 10. Anywho, now that we're on all these stations, not everybody knows who Tim Sandifer is. Who are you? Uh, I'm the vice president for legal affairs at the Goldwater Institute, which is a free market, private property rights, constitutional rights type organization based in Phoenix. And before that, I worked at the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is also a nationwide litigation center focused on protecting private property rights and other kinds of constitutional freedoms. So that's what I do professionally. And in my spare time, I write a lot. You write a lot, and you're a history buff and a freedom freak and a libertarian. There, That is definitely it. I am a freedom freak, and I have been from a very early age. 
child of the Cold War, raised with the specter of communism over my head. So I, I grew up taking freedom seriously, and I was lucky enough to find people who were willing to pay me for the job of articulating the principles of liberty and doing what I can to defend them. What's your theory on that? So you're a child of the Cold War. So are lots of other people who seem to be perfectly happy with welcoming socialism into our country. So what makes a person the way they are? Is it their parents? Is it the, <laughs> your surroundings as a kid? How does that work? I don't know. I think we underestimate the amount that genes have to do with that sort of thing. But I do think that obviously early training and, and education matter a lot. I was fortunate enough that my parents uh, taught me a lot about history when I was young. Like when I was very young, we went to places like Colonial Williamsburg and uh, and Boston and saw the sites of the American Revolution and and uh, and watched movies on that. I remember there was a Disney movie. Do you, maybe you've seen this. There's a Disney movie called Night Crossing that came out in the 80s. I think it had William Hurt in it. And it's about this family that lives in East Germany and they mm. escape across the wall by making a hot air balloon out of scraps of fabric that they save over time. And it's a true story. And I remember I saw that movie, I must've been like five or something. And when I finally saw it again, which was, you know, after I graduated from law school, I remembered every single line in that movie. It had made such an impact on me. I think this, the, the horror of losing your freedom just meant a lot to me, you know, from an early age. And I hated the fact that the state of California was forcing me to go to a school that I didn't want to go to and hang around with a bunch of sports loving bullies that I didn't want to be around. And <laughs> so I was just a, had a naturally rebellious streak at an early age. But so you did break the news story today that communism is a genetic thing. There's a communist gene. <laughs> so did you take any of the, the 250th anniversary Boston Tea Party stuff over the weekend? I meant to watch it, but so, I didn't get a chance. <laughs> I did. So so I, I texted you guys. I was like, I hope that you're all going to be pouring your drinks down the drain, at least on Saturday, <laughs> to celebrate the anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. So my wife and I went to this uh, this Christmas thing that they do in phoenix called luminaria it's at the desert botanical garden it's a lot of fun they have a lot of music and food and you walk around and look at the pretty lights and things but we had to step out of one of the concerts to take a few private minutes in a corner for about 50 minutes to watch the live stream of costumed interpreters pouring tea into boston harbor to celebrate the anniversary of the boston tea party i i'm sure we're the only person who did that people who did that but i i it was great i loved it Cool. Um, yeah, I'm sure. Dude, what did you do to celebrate? I'm sure it's on YouTube, and we'll have to take that in because I told my my son is a Revolutionary War founding history buff at age 11. He's super into that stuff. And uh, you told me about that George Washington series, which I was not aware of somehow um, from back in the 80s, and we started Harry watching Bostwick. that. Yeah, yep. we're several episodes into that. That's available on YouTube, and it's it's really great. Um, was kind of controversial when it came out because it shows george washington drunk and people at the time this was like 1983 i think people at the time were kind of bothered by that like the man was a soldier of course he got drunk why wouldn't the, but you know so it's but it's a marvelous show and then there's a sequel to that about washington's first presidential term so yeah definitely definitely check that out um the boston tea party thing what's the significance of the boston tea party so the the Boston Tea Party wa is mostly significant because what the what the British did in response to it by by pouring out the tea and uh, and making it so that nobody could pay the taxes and nobody could knuckle under to the to what the Brits were trying to do with with the tea situation, the king responded to that by closing the port of Boston, 
And you have to imagine what that must have been like. I mean, that's a very extreme proposition. Imagine some foreign government closing the port of Los Angeles today and putting its warships all around and not allowing any shipping in and out. That was a very big deal. And the Bostonians fled to the countryside by the, by the thousands. I mean, something like 15,000 people fled the city. And the people who's, who remained were subsisting off of handouts that were shipped to them by the other colonies. So it also brought Americans together in a, an important way. So it was mostly that that was the point when the Brits made clear that they were going to be, they were going to come at us with iron fists. And that built a lot of re- resentment and helped toward the revolution. Yeah, I'm going through the uh, that Sam Adams, the revolutionary biography, and being reminded again how... Up to, like, the last moment, so many people in the colonies, including some of our favorite founding fathers, were loyal to the to, to England. I mean, it took a lot. They had to be really screwed a lot of times before they said, all right, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, things like burning cities, burning the city of Norfolk, Virginia. That's what the Brit- British did. Occupying cities with, so, uh, you know, hundreds, thousands of soldiers to the tune of one soldier for every three colonists in the city of Boston. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Walk by and see these uniformed soldiers on every street corner. That that was it was pretty extreme. And we, we tend to downplay that stuff nowadays. We say, oh, it's just a little tax on tea and downplay how extreme what the British were doing really was. It's a shame. Yeah, that's good stuff. Love it. Um, maybe we'll talk about that Sam Adams book a little bit later. Uh, before we take a break, because I got some other questions for you about, uh, well, a whole bunch of different things. But uh, what, what are your, what are your, you do Christmas? You're an atheist, so what do you do for Christmas? <laughs> we celebrate Christmas, definitely. Okay. Star. Yeah, we, no star on the tree, though. The old-fashioned stuff, but I got my, got my Jewish David star going on okay. in solidarity right now. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll tell you what, what you said a couple of weeks ago in your... Um, you're a little screed about how important it is that the United States be the world's policeman and and keep a world order, uh, 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 a, a rule-based order, how important that is. A lot of people really liked that, and maybe we'll, we'll talk about that again. I, I am surprised by how many people are okay with Russia grabbing a country and keeping it and, uh, and Iran doing what they're doing and, and what that might mean for u.s interests the idea well, it's not in our interest i just i think that's incredibly short-sighted very short-sighted very much so um I, if there's there are a couple of things i can point to that i've changed my mind about in adulthood uh big issues and one of them is that whole world's policeman thing and when i when i was a younger not as bright i'm not that bright now when i was a younger less informed person i i was i was pretty much in that camp of why do we have to be the world's policeman and um, uh, the expense and the danger and all that sort of stuff. But it's be, it's definitely become clear to me. And now I look back on that and wonder how I ever thought it. But it gives me some um, a little more compassion for people, that those of you who do think that. The idea that the world order is so beneficial to the United States in the way, you know, a free market economy. And it's good for us, great for us, that we have this sort of world order. If we aren't the policemen, it doesn't stay the same way and we get to pull back. Somebody else... We'll make the rules and enforce them. That's just the way life works. You know, Thomas Jefferson wanted our country to be a forgettable little farming community. He wanted us to be like New Zealand. Mm. And that's a beautiful vision. It's a great idea, except that all of that, of that ship sailed in August of 1945. When, when the bomb fell and America became the world's spokesman for democracy, it's not a responsibility we wanted, but it's not one that we can shirk at this point. 
That's a great Jefferson nugget. I didn't know that. Well, you know, he wanted us. He he wanted Jefferson wanted us to not be an important country because if you're an important country, everybody looks to you. You bear these responsibilities. You you can't be as free as you otherwise would. You you'd have you have to pay regular taxes, things like that. I would love that too. But if we were to do that now, we're we're just handing over the world to the toughest bullies. That's that frankly is the and and abandoning our allies, our democratic allies, such as in Taiwan, such as in Afghanistan, such as in Iraq, you know, going in there and making promises and then coming and then breaking them when they become inconvenient. And then you stand around and wonder why nobody wants to be your friend anymore. You know, that's that's very short sighted realism in foreign policy means you have to fulfill your promises. And and yet people think of oh I'm going to be realistic by withdrawing from my promises because that's that's the you know that we got to be tough guys and everything. Well, if you're going to be tough guys like that, you'll have no friends. And if you have no friends, you're weaker. So the realistic approach is to stand for principles and not abandon them. That's good stuff. I've got more questions for Tim. If you've got any particular questions for him, uh, you can give me a text 415-295-KFTC. Much to discuss, a little bit of the news of the day and everything else on the way. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So Friday was the official last Armstrong and Getty show of the year. But for vacation scheduling reasons and a variety of other things I'm doing, a handful of uh, shows this week, and it'll be a slightly different vibe. I'm not going to be as focused as much on news of the day and breaking news and that sort of stuff. Although I do want to talk about that terrorism alert, and Tim's got a great story uh, to remind you of what that can all be like. But we'll get to that coming up uh, next segment. Tim Sandifer joins us today. So we got this text, um, most offensive Christmas commercial of 2023, Tommy John's underwear, their line this year is because Santa has a sack, too. And I agree. That is in poor taste. But, Tim, you say, also in poor taste, a crime that befell your parents. 
Yes. Well, so it, this was, uh, gosh, now I've forgotten how many years ago it was, but uh, the San Bernardino terrorist attack at, um, uh, in, in San Bernardino, California, the community center there, my cousin, who was really my adopted brother, Danny, was murdered by ISIS terrorists who, you know, self-recruited ISIS terrorists who decided to uh, go in there and murder as many people as they can. And uh, so it was, uh, you know, quite surprising. I was sitting here, in fact, in this office that I'm sitting in right now when uh, my mother's text messages came in. There's been a shooting at uh, at the, the San Marino uh, facility. And it was uh, it, quite a surprising experience to go through. Not Not exactly something I would wish on anybody. And so when you hear about these, these terrorism alerts and things that are, that are hitting the news, I totally understand why people are nervous about that sort of stuff. But, you know, you gotta, our position was you got to not let that sort of thing change your life. You got you to you stick with your, your plans as you have them, because otherwise you're handing over power to other people. And that was our response to that. Yeah, CBS News has obtained a joint intelligence bulletin from the Department of Homeland Security, FBI, and National Counterterrorism Center. The bulletin warns of an elevated threat of attack targeting public gatherings through the holidays, likely amplified by ongoing tensions related to the conflict between Israel and Hamas, it says there. Um, yeah. Whatever the reason is. And I remember in, in the wake of that, people... I had two kind of reactions or people reacting to me and to there's two different ways. One of them was people thought somehow that I would want like personally, like it would change how I viewed political questions first about either the, the second amendment or about foreign policy. Cause we were just talking about, about foreign policy matters and people were like, well, you, now you're going to be in favor of restricting immigration, for example, from middle Eastern countries, or now you're going to be in favor of restricting gun control or of, of increasing gun control. So people can't get weapons and things. And it did neither of those things. I, I, I And I think, unfortunately, one of the things that's hampering our democratic discussions and debates is that we sort of assume that people only speak for how they personally have been affected by stuff right. or their own personal attitudes towards things. And the the instead of thinking in abstractions or general principles. And so my attitude was this does not either increase or decrease my credibility as a person who speaks for or against any kind of policy matter. If you want to talk about how it affects me, you know, I can, we can do that. But that's totally different from the question of whether guns should be protected under the Second Amendment or not or or that sort of thing. And as far as, as immigration is concerned, it doesn't change my view at all that we should allow in the refugees who are trying to flee the tyrants who de- do these sorts of things. And yet that was sort of the atmosphere that, that evolved around this was, oh, well, this is going to change you because people only speak for what affects them personally. I, I never quite understood that. I've never understood that either. I mean, that's the whole, you're not a billionaire, so you think they ought to be taxed really heavily. Well, plenty of people who aren't billionaires don't agree that billionaires should, you know, pay for everything that happens. But anyway, right. um, and I do want to talk about the border a little bit later, but so the, the ISIS-inspired scumbags who killed your brother, um, uh, what happened? I don't remember the end. Were they killed in that? Yeah, they were hunted down and, and killed by law enforcement officials. And the FBI, I, I want to say, the FBI and, and others were so kind to us, to my parents, to our family. They were really good. They gave us any information that we wanted. I didn't look at any of it because my attitude is, you know, it, this, it, I'm not going to allow these people to have that kind of control over my life. In fact, my wife and I were going to a concert that night and we went anyway because we won't allow 
that sort of thing to affect our lives. If you do that, you really do allow them to win, and, and that's not going to happen to me. Wow, that's interesting. Did, so did you look into anything in the background of the, the murderers, like the, what, how they got to be the way they were, or you stayed away from that? My father did, and I pers- purposely kind of tuned it out because I didn't want to know. I've run across a little bit of information here and there, but honestly, if you ask me now, I couldn't tell you anything about it. Yeah, and I, I don't think it probably matters. And we know the overall uh, general idea behind it, and it's always the same. Um, it's always the same. Yeah, so uh, a poll that came out uh, yesterday that's got tongues wagging about Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. I talked to Tim, who knows a lot about the Constitution and the founding about our current process for choosing presidents. Is it the way it was supposed to be? Is there a better way? Because nobody's happy with the choices, really, so what the heck? If you miss a segment, get the podcast, Armstrong and Getty On Demand. Armstrong and Getty. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Armstrong and Getty Show. So are you saying that you at this point are planning to vote for President Biden, but reluctantly? Very reluctantly. Are you going to vote for President Biden again? Yes. Why? Um, I may not be as enthusiastic about him as a candidate, but I am by some of the things that he's done. And there's no way I'm going to vote Republican. But reluctantly, yes, I will vote Biden. Why reluctantly? I don't, I really um, don't agree with his dealings with the Middle East right now. Also his age. All right, that was on Meet the Press. They did a focus group thing. I think the whole focus group thing is so stupid. <laughs> Just you, you get a handful of people and whatever they think, wow, so Janie thinks this. And you're supposed to make some overarching assumption about America based on that. Anyway, Tim Sandifer joins us just so you can 
jump in anytime you want here. But uh, one particular thing I liked about that Meet the Press focus group is they had one trans woman on there, and she doesn't like Trump. So interesting, the trans community is not going to... Okay, whatever. Whatever conclusions you want to draw from that on Meet the Press. But the thing the thing that mostly I wanted to mention to you, Tim, since you know a little bit about... Uh, well, know a lot about how we got to the process we have, at least... Well, it started different than where it is now, but... um. For choosing a president, 95% of Americans don't want a Trump-Biden rematch, yet we're going to have a Trump-Biden rematch. And that, that, that seems odd in a democracy. What gives? I, well, there's a lot of problems. I think it's partly it's that our system is, has now gradually evolved to the point where it practically is designed to weed out anybody who has original, important, good ideas because they're too challenging to, to sort of establish constituencies out there. Anybody who, who wants to accomplish something is going to be vetoed by the people who have a stake in the status quo. But the biggest problem, of course, is that over the years, particularly since the New Deal, so much power has been given to the president that the president is in many ways basically a lawmaker. And that's not at all the way the Constitution was intended. It was supposed to be that the president executes the laws that Congress makes. And over time, the Congress has become less and less important. And the president has become more and more important. So, so much is at stake with the presidential election. You know, your future depends on who wins the presidency. And it makes it impossible to have polite political discussions, for one thing. And then it, right. it means that the system becomes hostage to, like, the the lowest common denominator in many ways. Yeah, I've read a lot. Of, Jonah Goldberg writes a lot about this for the dispatch, about um, if, we, if, if, if we had it more structured the way you were just talking about it, where Congress makes the rules and they're to blame or to credit for whatever's going on. It diffuses so much of the passion through so many different individuals and, you know, an election every two years and and, a, and, right. a, and an opportunity to uh, feel like you play a role as opposed to putting it all on one human being who's going to be there for four years. Right. Um, and that you're right. And that's where we end up in this weird situation where are you for this person or that person and everything about And that your- person becomes like... The, the knight in shining armor is going to show up and solve all your problems. It builds this mentality into people and uh, over the generations so that now it's like instead of thinking of government as sort of a ordinary, routine, mundane part of our lives, it's almost to some people it becomes a personal identity and it's as irrational as people who follow one sports team versus another so that their team can never do anything wrong. Even, with, even if their team is doing something clearly wrong, they still are loyal to it because that's their team. That's their identity. And everybody knows this is how human beings are. They've been this way since they crawled out of the swamps. And yet we and we have a system designed to prevent that from controlling our lives. And yet we ignore it. And so as a result, you know, we have this situation every four years. And it's not even every four, year, four years anymore because the day after the election, the campaign begins for the next presidency. You know? Tim Sanford breaking some evolutionary news that human beings crawl out of the swamp. So that's where we... <laughs> Well, the reason I say that, Jack, is because so as I know that you are, despite your public reputation, you are a serious reader and you read these immense shelf cracker books all the time. Have you read The D- Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire? Boy, just parts of it. I've never gone through the whole thing and you've recommended it. And so it's- I actually 
I actually made it through a, some years ago, the entire decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And one of the moments that really stuck out to me is there's a part where he, Gibbon is describing the gladiatorial games in Rome. And he says what happened was they, these the, people started having their favorite gladiator and it became like a personal identity for them. And they would adopt team colors and you would go around wearing your team colors. This is ancient Rome. Go around wearing your team colors. And these colors became kind of substitute political identities and pretty soon it developed into gangs in rome the reds versus the blues and these developed their own political candidates and it turned into this rivalry based and it's originated from sports teams and if anybody if any of our listeners out there have been to los angeles and know about the dodgers or uh, you know you know that there's sort of a political and and uh at, uh, ethnic identity that generates around these sports teams and it channels the sort of irrational tribal impulse that, that people have in their brains and it channels it into a politics so that it's like us versus them even if the candidates have identical policies and frankly the republican and democratic uh, candidates today have identical policies we like to pretend that they're so different oh their di worldviews are completely different no they both want to raise taxes and take your stuff and spend it uh, giving it to people who don't work that's that's how they operate one side calls their taxes taxes the other side calls it tariffs but it's all the same thing i love that description they want to raise your taxes and give it to people who don't work uh, it's funny uh, and true and sad and makes me cry. Um, <laughs> that that is interesting about the gladiators. Okay, that that is that is really fascinating. Yeah, Gibbon is great reading actually, and I, I really encourage people out there to give it a try because it's if if you like dry British humor, I was amazed by how funny decline and fall of the Roman Empire really is. Uh, the footnotes in it are filled with this really dry sort of uh, uh, clever puns and witticism and it's just a marvelous read just the point in order to get through a book like that don't try to learn anything from it that's the trick <laughs> if you're trying to get through a thick book like that don't try to remember anything just enjoy the reading and carry it around with you wherever you go and you'll get through it eventually because you spend so much of your time waiting for stuff that if you have a book with you at all times you'll get through a book no matter how long it is so don't be freaked out by it same thing with moby dick by the way i can hear everybody out there saying moby dick same thing with Moby Dick. Yeah, right. Well, I, I learned that about poetry fairly recently, and you're a published poet. But when somebody turned me on to the idea that not understanding it's fine, just read it, yeah. and then read it again some other time, and then just like let it kind of you know do its thing in the back of your mind. You don't uh, trying to understand it will make you crazy. Think screw this, and you close the book. But if you just say I don't need to understand it and read it, it's so much more enjoyable. Yeah, exactly. Just like painting, if you know, and and always whenever you go through this stuff, always remember Sturgeon's law, which is ninety percent of everything is crap. And just that's, that's true. a good one. I've not so heard it, Sturgeon's law. So if you don't like it, it's fine. It's there's nothing wrong with you if you read, uh, uh, you know, Walt Whitman and it doesn't and it doesn't ring a bell for you. Fine, move on to somebody else. You know, read E. Cummings or something, and and eventually you'll find the one that matters to you. Just the same as paintings. If you have a favorite painting, it's the same kind of thing. That's a good one. Ninety percent of everything is crap. Yeah. So so I don't I shouldn't feel bad when I walk through museums and I think what the hell. Right. In fact, the people who stand there and force themselves to pretend to like it, they're the fools. They're the ones who are trying to impress somebody and ending up just wasting their time. But if you find something you love, then you actually love it. And that person probably has diluted their ability to love art so much by that point that they are incapable of actually loving anything. Whereas you, you know what you like and you stick with what you like. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Did you hear us talking about or either see the article? I think it was in the New York Times about the Mona Lisa. 
and how they might put it in its own building just because it's become such a thing. Right. And people will stand in line for hours. There's no, I've never, I've not been to the Louvre, but I would, even if I go, I'm not going to stand in line to see the Mona Lisa and spend my whole time there doing that. Sounds crazy. But everybody wants to get, you know, uh, a, a selfie with that over their shoulder. Right. And that's what, and it's made the Louvre almost unusable because of the whole Mona Lisa thing. So they might move it into a separate building and let people wait in line for that and let everybody else see all the other great things. You know, exactly. Without the and crunch. Jack, I will tell you right now, there is not a single person in that line who loves the Mona Lisa so much that they actually want to stand in line for that amount of time to see it. That not a single one of them looks at the Mona Lisa and says, I love this painting so much. I have got to see the original no matter how much time it takes. Not a single one. Right. The way I did for the uh, new ten- Nintendo land with my kids, where we just loved it so much, we stood in the, line for two and a half hours. Or the way that I did when I got to meet William Shatner on the bridge of the Enterprise at the Star Trek convention three or four years ago. Wait, uh, in wait uniform. A in wait uniform. Wait a second. Meeting William Shatner is one thing. On the bridge of the Enterprise the in uniform. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I got it. And I got a picture and went back the next year and got it autographed. Uh, how did the uniform fit him at that time? Oh, the uniform. I was wearing the uniform, oh, Jack. Oh, you were in uniform, not him. Okay. And I, it's even better than that, Jack. It oh was the God. uniform. It was the uniform that my mother made for me when I was in high school, and it still fit. Well, congratulations on that. <laughs> um, so, uh, how? what was your age at the time that you were wearing the William Shatner outfit, waiting in line to see him? This was like two or three years ago. So, so you were? Mid-40s. <laughs> Hey, you laugh, but William Shatner's in his 90s, so... Yeah, I get it. <laughs> I was actually thinking about this last night for some reason with your... Uh, I, was, well, I was looking at your book list, your books of the year, and yeah. maybe we'll talk about that at some point. And I was thinking, man, you can read a lot more books when you don't have kids uh, yeah. than you can when you have kids. But I was also thinking... I didn't and better have, books. <laughs> better I was, books, too. <laughs> although I've been reading Huck Finn for... Uh, oh, working yeah. our way through that for a long time with my Great. youngest and really enjoying, enjoying yeah. it more now than I did like when I was in high school or whatever. Yeah. I'm way more impressed. But um, I was thinking, you know, I didn't decide to have kids. I was hardcore no kids guy and had kids at 45. So you don't know. Nope. You don't know. But you know. No, I don't know. You don't I, know. I'm okay, not, so I'm, the- not, I'm not completely against it in principle. It's just uh, I've got a lot of stuff I got to get done and it uh, doesn't fit into my schedule and there's various yeah. other reasons. So, yeah. I won't give you the speech, but. Yeah. Good, because you've given me the speech before, Jack. <laughs> it, I, I do worry, honest to God, uh, and we got to take a break in a couple of minutes, but I, I do worry about what our politics become the more childless we become. Oh, yes. be- and the older. Because you have a different view of the world if, if I think, you know, I'm going to be gone in 20 years and what do I care? Versus, I don't want my kids to live in a world where X, Y, and Z. It's a yeah. completely different, you know, worldview. Yeah, and not only that, but think about how, like, if we were talking about the American Revolution. The American Revolution was made by a bunch of drunk 25-year-olds. You know, the, the, the Civil War was fought by a bunch of drunk 25-year-olds. So at what point does our demographic get to the point where most Americans are too old, worn out, or jaded to stand up for principle and put their lives on the line for something that matters and so forth? I don't know the answer to that. I'm not automatically pessimistic, but it, it is something that you got to worry about. Yeah, well, it's never really been tried before, so we don't know how that's yeah. going to turn out. All right, mm-hmm. we got a lot more on the way. I hope you can stay with us. Hi, I'm William Shatner. I have searched earnestly and desperately for intelligence and perception in the universe, and I have found it everywhere except here on Armstrong and Getty. 
Armstrong and Getty. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Armstrong and Getty Show. So if I remember right, isn't this like the most listened to Christmas song of all time or something like that? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Mariah Carey. Let's let her get into the jazzy part here. I mean, I'm not against it, really, but it's not my cup of tea particularly. My kids hate it, but my son, the teenager, hates it. So tired of it. Yeah. My son, the teenager, hates everything right now, so. (laughs) Kind of your job as a teenager, I guess. There was one thing I didn't hate when I was a teenager. What's that? You can guess, but the second one was Star Trek. <laughs> um, so uh, we have Tim Sandifer on, um, uh, hanging out with us today. Uh, if I remember correctly, because got impeachment inquiry going on, so the fourth is that right? Fourth in twenty five years, or is it five? Got Clinton, two Trumps in this one, four in the last twenty five years. At least so far. We need more. Yeah, so that's why I was going to bring it up. I remember you saying uh, you feel like impeachment should happen more often. Uh, uh, Much more often. Absolutely. You should hold the president's feet to the fire. And you think the founders thought it would happen more often? I think so. That it was. If you read the Federalists, they say over and over again. If you're too worried, if you're worried that the president is going to abuse his powers, don't worry about it. We've got impeachment, and and if the if the people want them, in, people's representatives want to impeach the president, then that's how it should be. And if they don't, then they don't. I I don't see any reason why we should treat impeachment as if it were some kind of criminal trial. It's not, and it's a it's a means of the of the legislative branch holding the executive in check. I think it should be an ordinary feature of life. During the Civil War, there was a congressional committee on the conduct of the war that was constantly harassing Lincoln to get this war over and won, and he hated it, and it was better for the country. 
Well, clearly you're getting your wish as we are having our fourth impeachment, and it has become, you know, it feels pretty close to commonplace now. And I remember uh, uh, the Clinton impeachment in 98 was an, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening, historical moment. And now it's more of a, eh. so so you just like the idea of it's just kind of a, they're they're in office for four years. Let's check in now and then if we think they're out of line and uh, put it to a vote. Especially because over time, the Congress has passed so many bills that give the president this unilateral authority, especially through these huge administrative bureaucracies that we have now, where the president's executive orders in some ways carry the weight of the law. Well, we need stronger checks and balances against that. So I'm in favor of a constant you know, risk of impeachment on the part of the president. I think it should be something that's always looking over his shoulder no matter what. Yeah, this... The direction we've gone with the presidency where they do the executive orders and uh, even when they they will say out loud, sometimes it's unconstitutional and then do it anyway to to get the credit or sign or sign bills. Right. But but George W. Particularly, I remember when he signed the bipartisan campaign reform act, he said this is unconstitutional, but I'm going to sign it anyway, because I think the Supreme Court's going to strike out the unconstitutional parts. And thank goodness they did. But he took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And to my mind, that means he is obligated to veto anything he thinks is unconstitutional. And here he says, well, I think it's unconstitutional, but I'm going to sign it anyway. And you know, which is essentially like ringing the Supreme Court's doorbell and leaving the burning bag on their front doorstep to deal with. What? I don't think the president should be able to do that. Wow, that's an interesting image. And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg comes out and stomps it out, and it's full of <laughs> dog poo. So I get it. You know, I don't know. Somebody years ago proposed the idea of a re- reality show where you make all the Supreme Court justices live in the same house together. <laughs> and I would watch the hell out of that reality show. <laughs> I think that would be so great. But but you're right. So George W. Bush did that. Then Barack Obama with DACA or whichever one it was, where he right. said out loud, "I can't do this. It's unconstitutional." Then did it, and then and uh, then did it, and then we keep doing it. Every president does it now. So how does that end? And how does how do you have respect for the Constitution after that? In many quarters in this country, respect for the Constitution is already treated as a joke. So and, and unfortunately, including a lot of our of our legal community. So how, it can only erode respect for the Constitution. And that means respect for the rule of law to say, oh, well, yeah, it's unconstitutional, but who cares? In, in a lot of places today, if you say something's unconstitutional, they take that as you saying you don't have any good arguments to make. Well, so um, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, old man moment, Joe Biden moment, had it in my head talking about the Constitution, did it even though it was unconstitutional. Blah, blah, blah. God, I can't remember my train of thought. Does this happen to you yet? You're still in your 40s. Oh, no, it's starting to happen. Yeah. You know, uh, Bill Cosby used to say that that uh, thoughts are heavy. So what happens is when you get up from your chair, the thought of what you were getting going to do falls into your butt. And that's why when you stand up, you're like, why did I stand up again? You can't remember. And then as soon as you sit down, it pushes it back up into your head. You go, oh, that's right. That's why I got up. And then, you, you know, headline Tim Sandifer quotes rapist Bill Cosby. (laughs) <laughs> this was a pre pre rape Bill Cosby. <laughs> well, no, actually, it was, it was actually yeah. pre discovery. It was, yes, just- <laughs> yes, yes, he, yeah, exactly. Actually, Jerry Seinfeld's had that conversation on uh, with a bunch of comedians. Do you, can you still enjoy Cosby's work? And some of them say no, and some of them say yes. You know, you know my wife can't, and and I can. I think is yeah, I, you know, right. I put I, it out of my mind, but she just yeah, I, I can separate the two. 
Interesting. Yeah. I uh, no, I have a constitutional question that I want to get okay. to. We'll get to that uh, to kick off hour three, doing four hours of a whole bunch of different stuff, um, different tone this week, because it's just me and uh, a variety of great guests like Tim Sandifer. But if you miss a segment or you want to just subscribe to the podcast, that's the easiest way to get it. Subscribe to Armstrong and Getty On Demand. If you have a particular question for them, go ahead and text me, 415-295-KFTC. Armstrong and Getty. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.